Well, uh, good morning. It's really good to be with you again. I was uh, here for the last time perhaps almost two years ago, uh, and so it's really good to see faces that I know and some that I don't. Uh, let me begin by just expressing our thanks as a family for uh, your prayers and for your support over the last year and a half of our time in Cyprus. Uh, settling somewhere new is never easy, as I'm sure many of you know, uh, and uh, we have been very uh, encouraged knowing that we are not alone and that we have people uh, praying for us, praying for our work and supporting us in many different ways. So thank you for that. Uh, before we open God's Word together, let me just give you a little bit of an update um, of what we're doing in Cyprus. Our vision for Cyprus is that Cyprus would be filled with the knowledge of God's glory, uh, that the church there would be showing Christ um, to, to those who don't know him, uh, to, uh, to make his grace known. And um, as with everywhere, the, the way that Christ does that is through his church, through his word in his church. So uh, our aim really is to strengthen the church in Cyprus so that it is able to show Christ. Besides normal church work, so I, I, uh, I work for the Greek Evangelical Church of Larnaca. Uh, that is a Greek-speaking congregation, um, which uh, there are very few of on the island. Uh, besides normal uh, church life, Bible studies, Sunday school, that kind of thing, two of the big things I do, uh, I, we have an interchurch youth group in the island, uh, hoping to bring God's Word to the young people, to the teenagers, so that they, uh, they grow up loving the words of Christ, uh, coming to full maturity and being able to be faithful followers of Him uh, in Cyprus. So I work uh, with the youth there. I, uh, we, have a, we have a youth group. It's much as you'd, you'd have here, um, but plugging away uh, trying to teach uh, the Bible to them. Uh, and another big thing that we're starting up, if you, uh, if you follow our prayer updates, you'll have seen this. Um, we're, we're hoping to start a Bible school in Cyprus. Cyprus has no uh, theological education, formal or informal. Um, and what Cyprus really needs is theological maturity. We have a great deal of enthusiasm, um, but uh, what we need is we need people equipped to, uh, to handle God's word, to uh, to share um, their faith, to uh, build churches uh, faithfully uh, and fruitfully. So that's what we're, we're aiming to do with, uh, with our Bible school, uh, which will be starting in October um, if we have students. So one of the things you can be praying for really is that that gets off the ground, that we get people signing up. We've had excited noises, but very few concrete uh, sign-ups uh, and applications yet. So please pray for that. I could go on for a long time, um, but I won't, uh, and uh, we'll be around at the end, so please come and talk to us. I'm happy to share more. Um, but once again, thank you so much for your prayers and for your support, and please keep praying for us, uh, because it is only by the power of Christ that any of these things are done. Right, let's, uh, let's turn to God's Word now. We're going to be reading from Revelation chapter 1 this morning. This is Revelation chapter 1, verses 10 to 20, which apparently is page 1028 in the Visitor Bibles. So if you've got one of those, you can find the passage there. So one, uh, Revelation 1, verse 10. I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus and to Smyrna and to Pergamum and to Thyatira and to Sardis, and to Philadelphia, and to Laodicea. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and on turning, 
I saw seven golden lampstands, and in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze refined in a furnace, and his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in full strength. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. Write, therefore, the things that you have seen, those that are and those that are to take place after this. As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. Amen. Let's, uh, let's briefly pray. Father God, we thank you for this word to us this morning. We pray that you would bless it to us, that we would have ears to hear and uh, hearts that long to follow you and to obey you and to trust in you. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, I wonder if, uh, if these words are familiar to, to you. One night, I dreamed a dream. And as I was walking along the beach with my Lord, across the dark sky flashed scenes from my life. And for each scene, I noticed two sets of footprints in the sand, one belonging to me and one to my Lord. Perhaps some of you recognize those words. They're from a, a famous poem called Footprints in the Sand. Uh, and what this poem is meant to be is meant to be a peek behind the curtain, uh, a reminder to go behind and see what's going on behind what you see with your eyes. And here's the punchline of the poem. My precious child, I love you and will never leave you, never, ever during your trials and testings. When you saw only one set of footprints, it was then that I carried you. So the message of this poem is, Jesus is with you. Now, perhaps you've heard that poem before. I've heard it many times in my life. And perhaps you thought, well, that's nice. I like that. It's, meant, it's, it's a poem that's meant to cheer you up when you're feeling a little down. It's a bit like a warm bath that you can sort of sink into. Ah, that's nice. It's soft and fuzzy and, and it feels good. Now, in this passage that we just read together, the Apostle John had his own vision, his own chance to look behind the curtain. And, at least superficially, the punchline was pretty similar. Jesus is with you. And he was given his look behind the curtain for a similar reason, for help in difficult times. But, as we'll see, his vision was quite different. And as we'll see... Jesus being with us may be less like a warm bath with a soft towel that makes us feel cozy, and it might be more like a plunge into ice-cold water that makes us feel alive when life is on the line. So, uh, briefly, this is what John saw. Let's run uh, through these things. He saw one like a son of man, that is, Jesus. And he was wearing uh, a robe and a sash, and I think we're meant to see that as a priest's robe and sash. He has stars in his hand. He has a double-edged sword coming from his mouth. His skin is like glowing metal. His eyes are like fire. 
and his voice is like a multitude of waters, like a, like a huge waterfall roaring. And he's standing in the middle of a set of lampstands. Uh, in case you don't recognize those, uh, this is not the type of lamp that we have in our living rooms. These are lampstands that were used in the Jewish temple. Now, there's a lot going on there. There's a lot of imagery here. But thankfully, John gives us a place to start. He tells us these lampstands are the churches. That's what they are. That's what they represent. Uh, seven churches in particular, uh, those mentioned uh, there in, uh, in verse 11. So here we see John uh, saw a vision of Christ standing amongst his churches. Or to put, another, put it another way, in this vision, Jesus tells John that he is with his church. Christ is with us. And uh, in, this, in this vision, he shows us something of what that means. What does it mean that Jesus is with us? That's something I think we often need to uh, work to re-understand. We've often been tricked into trading the Christ shown here for a hot bath and soft towel kind of Jesus. And that trade has robbed us. We've not gained in that. It's robbed us of the real strength we need, the courage we need, the potent joy we need, and the holy fear that we need to cope with difficult times as Christians. So, this morning, what does it mean that Christ is with us? Uh, Three things. Christ is with us to purify us. Christ is with us, speaking judgment and blessing. And Christ is with us, so do not fear death. First then, Christ will purify his people. He is with us to do that. I want you to imagine um, you walk into what you assume is a restaurant, and you look around and you see a man stood there uh, surrounded by deep fat fryers, and he's wearing a McDonald's uniform. It's pretty clear, if you didn't know already, you've walked into McDonald's. Now, John here sees Jesus wearing a priest's robe, uh, a priest's uniform, surrounded by temple lampstands. We're meant to see here that we've walked into the temple. This is temple imagery. And we're meant to see Jesus here as some kind of priest. And that shouldn't be a surprise for us. We know from many places uh, in the Bible that Jesus is the great high priest. He's the one who serves in the real heavenly temple, the real one. And one of the things that the priests did in that old temple, the Jewish temple, was to take the sacrificial blood in and sprinkle all the temple tools, uh, the altar, the, the lampstands, etc., to make them holy, to make them fit for purpose. So let's follow the pictures here. Uh, the priest purifies and tends to, amongst other things, the lampstands. The lampstands in this vision are the churches. Jesus is the priest. Jesus, the great high priest, stands amidst his churches, purifying them, tending them. Now, if, if you were to read all the passages that follow this, the letters to each of these churches, uh, you'd, you'd see um, that Jesus tells these churches specifically he's, he's going to cleanse them, he's going to purify them. And you'll see some of the ways that he's going to do that, um, how he's going to tend them and make them clean, make them fit for purpose. He says things like, uh, church, you tolerate this evil, cleanse it, remove it, cut it out. Or, uh, church, this part of your life together is rotting, cut it out. Or, church, come to me and be cleaned. Come to me and receive robes 
of white. More widely in Revelation, in this part of Revelation, uh, Jesus is uh, revealing to his church things that will help them understand um, the things that are about to happen to them. Some uh, particular persecutions coming their way, uh, reassuring them that he is with them, uh, making it clear to them that these difficulties are in his hands, and revealing to them how he intends to use those difficulties. Now, one of the questions we often have as individuals and as churches when difficult times come is, what's the point? What's happening? Why is this happening? Well, Jesus here reveals at least a little of the answer to that question for these Christians and to us as well. Part of the point of these difficulties coming on them is to purify, to cut out those things that are rotting, to cleanse those things that are putrid, to make his church fit for purpose, fit for the purpose of shining the light of God's glory into a world that needs to see the light of God's glory and be freed from darkness. Jesus is with these churches. He, by his Spirit, moves amongst them. And in the midst, actually often through the coming difficulty, he will purify them. The bride of Christ is getting ready for her wedding day. Jesus is with them and he is doing it. And this is the same for us today. Jesus is with us. He's really amongst his people by his spirit. He's here to purify, to cleanse. So what might that mean for us? What, uh, what expectations does that set for us as Christians over the next few years, over the next decades of our lives? Uh, what does it mean uh, that we should expect as people who live in part of the history of Christ's bride getting ready, being purified? Well, it might not be a comfortable message. It might not be always comfortable, but it may be comforting. And what it means for you depends uh, on what type of person you are. What it means for you as a church body will depend on what type of church you are, whether you are faithful or faithless. If you are faithful, this message is a message of sharp and energizing joy. I'm sure that you uh, look at your sin and you hate it. I'm sure that you wish that it wasn't there. You see the, the mess it makes in your life. You see uh, how it hurts others, how it uh, disobeys the Christ that you love. And I'm sure that you hate it. Hate it. Well, have hope. Christ is purifying his people, and that includes you if you trust him. It may not be comfortable for you always as his discipline unfolds in your life, but it is good. It is good, and it leads to true beauty. And perhaps you, you also look at the church uh, more widely, uh, look at the church here perhaps and, think, perhaps, and think, that's not great, or that thing over there, I wish that wasn't there. Or there's a mess here that needs to be uh, sorted. Or, or this is not fit for the presence of God. Well, be of good heart. Christ is purifying his church. Christ has brought the final cleansing blood into the temple. The work is finished. And he will uh, roll it out. He will cleanse the church. The church will not always have those things that are so ugly now that pain us so. She will be as a bride adorned for her husband. So if you are faithful, take heart. Uh, this is a message of joy. Secondly, though, if you are not faithful, or if uh, you uh, 
if you know of, of churches that don't care about the purity of the church, this is a warning uh, to you or to them. To see that, read the letters that follow this passage. What happens there to those parts of the church that are unholy and don't care? That don't care uh, that they uh, embrace sin that the Lord hates? Who don't repent and will not repent? Well, they're cut out, they're destroyed, they're removed. Now, obviously, Jesus wants them to repent. If he didn't want them to repent, he would not warn them. But if they don't, well, when metal passes through refining fires, the dross gets removed. And if you're in the church, but you embrace sin, or if you are a church and you you don't turn from sin, you need to realize that you're in a dangerous place. Christ, the purifying priest, is walking through his churches, and his job is to purify, and he'll do it. And it is one of the things he uses difficulties to do, to discipline his children and to purify the church. These lampstands will shine with the glory of the presence of God. You can count on it. May that be great joy to you who are faithful, but may it be a warning to you if you are not, because Christ the high priest is with his people. Secondly, Christ is with us and he is active. His words are powerful. Now, as I'm sure uh, you're all aware, we have a new king on the throne. Theoretically, King Charles III still has plenty of authority in this country on paper. But how shocked would you be if he actually used it? He theoretically has a lot of authority, but just imagine, what if he used it? Well, sometimes I think we uh, think of Jesus like that. Technically, I suppose, he has authority to do things. Technically, he has the power to do his will. But really, we'd be shocked if he actually did anything. Jesus did things in the past. Amen. He will do stuff in the future. Amen. But does he do anything now? We're not quite so sure on that one often. But here in this vision, John saw Jesus with a double-edged sword coming from his mouth. That sword represents Christ's words, and not just um, things he says, but his decisions, his decrees. Uh, A king rules by speaking commands. Uh, Jesus speaks, and it comes with power. Uh, And in this image, it comes with the power of the sword. The sword particularly has the power to protect, to defeat, and to destroy You see, Jesus uh, is in heaven, but he's not just sitting around. He's sitting at the right hand of his Father. He is sitting on the throne. He has been given all authority on heaven and on earth, and he is using it, not least when it comes to the history of his church. Jesus is with his church. He is active. He does things. He speaks powerful decrees and they happen. I think it's always a temptation, always has been a temptation for the church, uh, for people generally, but also for the church, to say in our hearts, what can God do? Does he see? Does he act? I could walk away from his words and nothing would happen. And that becomes an even greater temptation in the midst of difficulty because the rest of the world is saying that as well, saying, your Lord is not here. Where is he? 
He's powerless. We can do things to you. We're not powerless. Leave his words. Our words have power. Our decrees will turn against you. Fear the swords that come from our mouths. Well, these churches needed to see the lie of that. Jesus is absolutely with them. He is not absent. He is in their midst. He sees them, and he is the one who will cast down or lift up by the power of his words, by his decree, by his decision. You, as a church, uh, as individuals as well, and as a church, uh, you're going to face the choice at some point. The word of God says something. Will I trust God? Or will I shrink back, afraid? Will I listen to the words of the world around me? Will I give in? Will I become embarrassed by what God says? Will I uh, trust Christ and trust his promises? Will I trust his words? Will I trust his verdict on things? Will I trust that what he says is the truth or not? Well, John was given this vision as a gift to the church, as a loving warning, because the church needs to know that these choices have consequences, that Christ is active, that Christ is true to his word, that Christ is the one who has the power to speak things into being and the power to speak things out of being, that Christ's decrees are the ordering of all history and that Christ's spirit is the wind in history's sails. And so they needed to know that in the coming troubles, if they, as a faithful church, repent, stay faithful, refuse to be embarrassed by the Lord they love, refuse to be embarrassed by his word, then Christ, with his powerful word, could bless them. He could protect them. He will bring fruit to their labors. He'll bring growth from the seed of their witness, even if that witness was to be death for some of them. If they stick with him, he has the power, the authority to bless them. And the other side is true as well. If the church, uh, the churches that John is uh, giving this, this vision to, if the church has decided to flake, to abandon their first love, to turn back, to tolerate the sin which, which Christ hates, then they ought not to think that it would go unnoticed by Christ. It might buy them some time, but not uh, in the end of things. If part of the body is dead, then don't think Christ won't at some point chop it out. Now, it's important to remember here that Jesus is not telling his church here to, to earn their salvation, to earn their place in his good books. He's not saying do enough good stuff, stuff and I'll spare you this time, but next time you better watch out. He's not doing that. This is all about trusting Christ. This is all about placing loyalties, allegiance in the right place. It means uh, trusting uh, Christ and trusting his words, taking his words as the true describer of reality. This is essentially about faith. It is also about obedient and unrepentant disobedience, but only because obedience and disobedience are the ways that belief and unbelief reveal themselves in history. A man, uh, a few examples here, um, just to get this, this point across clearly. Uh, a man who refuses to repent of his porn use and embraces it instead of uh, just, uh, who embraces it instead of, of, of repenting and turning to Christ, is not just guilty of bare disobedience, but more seriously, 
It's the situation that reveals his faithlessness, his unbelief, his lack of trust in Christ and his words, that, that Christ's words are not the decider for him. Or another example, a woman who refuses to repent of her bitterness, who unrepentantly disobeys the command to forgive and will not go there, is not just guilty of bare disobedience, but is also showing forth the far greater issue of unbelief, of faithlessness, of a refusal to take Christ's words as the decider in her life. And a church that will not take its stand against uh, sexual perversion, against child sacrifice, against uh, the state's great modern blasphemies towards the true king. They may be ignorant, yes. They may be simply stubborn, that's true. Or may, in fact, be revealing their refusal to take all of Christ's words as the decider. Revealing, through the course of history, their unbelief, their lack of faith in him. It's faithlessness. So, though Christ here is talking about obedience and disobedience here, uh, he is not just telling the church to simply earn safety by ticking boxes. He is telling them to trust him. He's saying to his churches, cling to me. Trust me. Trust my words. Because my words describe reality. My words are promises of blessing to you. So, set your foundation on them and on nothing else because there is no other sure foundation. Pledge your allegiance to me and my words, because I am the one who has washed you clean, and I am the one who has taken away your sin. I am the one who has bought you, who has made you mine with the price of my own blood. Christ is saying, my words are it. Trust it. Trust me. Christ is with us, He stands with eyes of fire and a voice of many waters, and his word is a double-edged sword. He is with us, he is active, and the lesson is as clear for us today as it was then. If we choose unbelief, that is, if we choose faithlessness, if we abandon our trust in Christ, then we mustn't think that he won't do anything about it. We mustn't think we can scorn his word and get away with it. But if we choose to trust him, unashamed, then we must be of good heart and unafraid because Christ the Lord is with us and his words are a double-edged sword that can protect, can bless, and will bring fruit from the witness of his church. And that brings us to our, our final point. Christ is with us, so do not fear death. Jesus says in this vision, fear not, I am the first and the last and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. Perhaps somewhere in your house you have a a lockbox, something you've you've put your uh, your precious uh, items in, you put your jewelry, perhaps some uh, sentimental things that you can't replace, money perhaps, I don't know. Um, You've got a place where you've put these things and you've locked, you've locked it. Well, who can get the stuff out of that, uh, out of that lockbox? Well, it's you. You can get it out because you have the key. You have the power to unlock the door. You never go, oh, no, I really want my, my jewellery, but they're in the box. I can't get them out. They're gone forever. Because you have the key, you can open the door. It's not a barrier to you like it would be to someone else. And you have the right to. It's yours. Well, Jesus is the key holder 
of death and Hades, Hades being the world of the dead. Quite plainly here, he has the authority and the ability to let the dead out. Death can keep no one any longer than Christ says it can. Death hasn't got that authority anymore because Christ has it. And crucially, that means that for Christians, death is not the end. What's death going to do? Lock us away forever? It can't. Death doesn't have the keys. Christ has the keys. These churches needed to know that Christ is with them, that he is for them, and that not even death can take or hold his people any longer than he allows it. Why is, why is this such an encouragement for the churches who first received this message? Well, when John got this vision, difficulty was coming for the church. Christ was about to shake his church, about to purify it, as we've seen. And, and what was not built on the foundation of his word was going to crumble. Purifying fire was coming. And that is never comfortable. Not at all. Uh, and in, in reality, it meant things like Christians losing their homes, losing friends, family members. It meant Roman armies marching through lands, laying siege. It meant civil war all around them. And through it all, the temptation was there. Back down. Stand on something other than the word of God. Save yourself from death. Shrink back in embarrassment. Turn back. Turn back from the claim of Christ on the world. Go on. It'll be easier. It'll be less scary. To take the imagery of later in the book of Revelation, the church here is about to stand against a dragon, and everyone is tempted to run from a dragon. And so what great message do they need? Stand faithful, even if it kills you. Even if it kills you. Because who has the key of death and Hades? Jesus does. And he is with you. And death and Hades cannot hold you any longer. You can't die unless Christ calls it. You will die as soon as Christ calls it. And even if you do die, Christ will raise you from the dead. For he has the keys to death and Hades. Death could not hold him. Death will not hold any of his people. I want to share with you a quote from, uh, from a missionary from about 1,300 years ago. Someone who understood this point very clearly. He said this, I know I shall die and I shall die on time. Therefore, I must make the most of the moments between here and there. And the way I can make the most of these moments is to live them in terms of that which I know to be absolutely true and unchanging. I will not be swayed from this conviction, though my moments be short, though my moments be long. He knew that Christ holds the keys to death and Hades. And he knew that Christ is with his church. And so do we. And we can stand on this truth even if it kills us. That missionary was beaten to death by a band of pagan warriors at the age of 79. And he died clutching a series of sermons all about the hope of Christians beyond death. Fear not. I am the first and the last. The living uh, and the living one. I died and behold I'm alive forevermore. And I have the keys to death and Hades. Now, we're not quite facing death yet for our faith, though I think we're facing the very real possibility of prison soon. It seems to be growing. And it will be embarrassment or lack of trust in God's words that, that saves us from that. 
and it will be trusting God's words that lands us there. But the only fear we should have in this moment that is fearful is the fear of the Lord and not fear of man, not embarrassment, not shame at any of the Lord's words. Fear the righteous one who is clothed in the purest of priestly robes. Rejoice and tremble as you commit yourselves to the beauty of his righteousness and the trustworthiness of his words. Fear the one whose decrees cut down and build up. Build on the foundation of his word and do not assume that he will do nothing if you detest his words. Fear him and no one else because being with him, no one else can ultimately touch you because being with him is not a losing battle. Christ will purify his church. Christ blesses as well as judges, and Christ has overturned death itself and holds the keys of death and Hades. That Christ is with us. We we ought to remember it, because even faithfulness unto death will not be lost with this Christ. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for this vision We thank you this vision you gave to John, that we uh, can share in it and see this vision of Christ, our Christ, who we trust. Father God, we pray that these words would encourage us, would strengthen us, would give us real joy in beautiful things, but also give us a fear of you that carries us through difficult times faithfully and fruitfully, and also great courage, Lord, in the face of the world uh, that would war against us. Father, bless us with these words and encourage us this morning and on into the week and years ahead. In Jesus' name, amen.